0: from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio.
1: Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. Listening in on the conversation we have every week, exploring all those things related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am Stu Friedman, your host, I'm founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program. I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. You can visit totalleadership.org for information on how we help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. Yes, it is possible. I've just released an audio course based on Total Leadership. It's called Four-Way Wins. It's on Himalaya Learning, which is an audio learning platform that has an extensive library of wonderful courses. You can listen to my course and others like it at Himalaya.com slash wins. If you go there, enter the promo code wins at the checkout, you get your first 14 days free. Well, I hope to see you there. New episodes of our show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on SiriusXM channel 132. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business as well as me. I'm at Stu Friedman. Never has there been a a time with more people rethinking our educational system, with many of us having spent this last year and a half teaching our kids at home, realizing how much is involved, really involved in the work every day of educating the next generation. My guest today says it's not about getting kids back into the classroom, though, so much as it is about the current system being flawed because it ignores our deepest knowledge about how human beings thrive. And she should know, being a former elementary school teacher, Olka Joshi Hansen is the author of The Future of Smart, How Our Education System Needs to Change to Help All Young People Thrive. This is a great and truly important book, for anyone interested in the educational system, whether you're a parent, a student, a funder, uh, an administrator, a policy person, a person in government, Oka, welcome to Work and Life.
0: Hi, Stu. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
1: Let me tell listeners a bit about you before we get into the conversation. Um, a remarkable uh, career so far. Oka believes each young person deserves the chance to discover their unique potential and to explore what that means for how they contribute to the world. This isn't an entirely new idea, uh, but her way of uh, describing how we got to where we are and, and how our educational system doesn't provide that kind of opportunity and what needs to be done about it is I think distinctive and important. She's a mother of two and a former elementary teacher Who's worked in education for two decades. She's also chief program officer at Grantmakers for Education, the, nation, the nation's largest and most diverse network of education grant makers dedicated to improving educational outcomes and increasing opportunities for all learners. An internationally recognized expert on educational transformation at the level of instruction, assessment, organizational design, and policy systems, all levels, really. Hansen. Has a BA in philosophy from Drew University, a PhD from the University of Oxford, and a JD, Juris Doctor, from the Harvard Law School. That is a lot of education. (laughs) In a formal sense, not the only form of education that's available or important in our lives. She's a two-time TEDx speaker, has been recognized nationally for her leadership as a Harry S. Truman Scholar, a British Marshall Scholar, and a Paul and Daisy Soros Fellow. There's more, but I'm going to leave it at that. Oka, as you so astutely note, so much has changed in our world over the last, well, 200 years plus, but our education system has remained pretty much the same. How and why was our current system of K through 12 education established? And what centrally, what, what is the core idea that you bring that helps us to see what needs to change now?
0: So the whole book, my book is an exploration of what it would take to move our system from one that asks, kind of, are you smart, to asking, how are you smart? And in the first part of the book, I try and take us back further than the factory model of education, which I think a lot of us have heard critiques and conversations about how kids you know, were put in desks and rows and teachers at the front. And all of that is true. But where I'm trying to take people is even further back to about 500 years ago in Europe, when there was a really fundamental shift in human beings' understanding of the world, of themselves in relationship to the world, themselves in relationship to each other. And I use the term indigenous very intentionally. And I I took care after getting a lot of feedback um, to define what I mean by that. And I use the term indigenous to point to a way of human beings living together in the mm-hmm. world that predates external imposition of economic, political, religious, kind of social priorities.
1: External and to what? External-, external
0: to the ways in which they were living before the imposition of those things. So let me, let me explain, right? So about 500 years ago, before that time, people understood, they had stories about the world, about themselves. You know, the world was kind of living, they were interconnected. The world had been sort of founded, but we understood ourselves as living inside of a a broader ecosystem and part of it. Mm -hmm. And part of what happened during the scientific revolution in Europe was that it was a way of thinking of ourselves as human beings as external to that world and being able to conquer it, to master it, to break it apart, to understand it and to reconfigure it in a way that allowed us to use it. And there were a lot of really important things that came out of that. And it disrupted our understanding of the wholeness, the interconnectedness, the embodied, embodied way in which we live in the world. And so the first part of the book is trying to locate the emergence of our formal education systems and structures—the mm-hmm. ones that we know today—as
1: right, part well, of what happened during that time. Before I start crying uh, at the recounting of of the history and the, and the way the world was broken further by the industrial <laughs> revolution and rented rendered apart our <laughs> our sense of you know connection to the world, you know th- this beautiful world that that humans have been fortunate to inhabit for so long. Let, let me ask you, like, why is it important for us today to go back so far in history to look at what went wrong uh, so that we can look to the future with some sense of hope and optimism about what's possible to recreate uh, the educational environments for, for humans to thrive, especially in this country?
0: Right. So we live inside a cultural stew right? And that stew includes lots of assumptions and values and beliefs that most of us never think about because it is what we live inside of. And to be be aware of those assumptions and values and beliefs is important because I think you can't change anything until you really understand what it is. And in the Mm -hmm. introduction to the book, I say, you know, we're having this debate in education, but this shift in worldview from a more holistic indigenous worldview to a more Cartesian, Newtonian kind of mechanistic worldview, it birthed a lot of different systems. So the same worldview that birthed the factory model of education, also birthed kind of things like unrestrained capitalism. It birthed the beliefs that allowed colonialism and enslavement to happen. It birthed systems in which, you know, we think of medicine as intervention rather than wellness. So it birthed Mm. a criminal justice system that we're all debating right now. Right. So it, we're having a lot of conversations in America and around the world today, I think that actually are grounded in our unhappiness with the systems and structures that were birthed out of a very particular view of the world. And so if we're really going to make meaningful change and not just tinker on the edges of not only education but lots of other systems, I think it's important for us to pause and be aware of what those assumptions and values are and mm-hmm. ask is that how we want to live?
1: Yes, well that's true for us as a society and for each one of us of course as individuals. How, what are our core values? How do we want to live in the world and you're asking a huge question about what that uh, uh, that inquiry about our purpose as humans, uh, what that implies for our educational system. Um, <clears throat> there, there's so much in what you just said that I I want to dig into, but I, I want to make sure that listeners get uh, a good feel for what's in. Uh, the future of smart with respect to um, not just the history, which is such an important place to begin, yes, yes, uh, but how we see uh, the systems as they exist today and what we can do to to change them your Your choice of holistic indigenous as the kind of language to describe what 's needed, I think that 's bold and you know completely apt. And it really does capture, you know, the the imagination and the, your, one's attention to, uh, to to thinking about a holistic approach. Um, and yet, that's not what we have now. And, and as I said, my introduction to you, you, you know, you're, you're not the first person to come you know, to come up with this idea. What is it, right? Um, there have been many critiques of the modern educational system. What is it that that the future of smart brings that that is distinctive? Um, in your opinion?
0: So I talk in the beginning of the book about how the theory of the book mimics some interesting research in neuroscience, right? That embedded into the human brain is this tendency to do two things at the same time, both of which are really important for us to survive. We need to be able to see the world as a whole, see the big picture, understand kind of patterns and and the, the wholeness of what exists. That's our right hemispheric work. Our left hemispheric work is to take that big mass of data, break it down, analyze it, abstract it, make it useful for us in our daily lives. And when the brain is working in the right way, it goes from the right hemisphere. You then go to the left hemisphere to analyze, to break apart and make useful. And then you give back to the right hemisphere to put that usefulness into a bigger context, right? We could think of that as wisdom. And what I tried to do in this book, I started in the first part, zooming out and being like, let's see the big picture here. Mm -hmm. In the second part of the book, I go into what I have come up with as a framework for how education exists today that takes us beyond a lot of the debates that we have, which is, you know, our districts run schools better or charter schools better or art schools better. Those are all about governance models, right? And themes, and I lay out a sort of framework of three different orientations that schools take to their work in particular, so that we can distinguish between efforts to just tinker on the factory model system Mm -hmm. and build uh, the distinction between that and building schools that really are human centered liberatory out of a different set of values. And then, and the third part of the book, I try and zoom back out again, which is, okay, given this future, how do we get there? Right. Mm And how do we have this big picture approach? So I think that's what I tried to do in the book for you, the reader, is to kind of have that experience of big picture, detailed, drill down analysis. And oh, where do we go? And what's, nice. what are so the steps? So
1: you've recapitulated the model of a, of, a, of a wise mind in the very structure of the book. Cool. That's what we tried to do. That's, <laughs> that's something that uh, I, I admire greatly. And I, I think it, it adds to the power and the sort of integrity of your approach. Uh, Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. My guest today is Okta Hansen, author of The Future of Smart, How Our Education System Needs to Change to Help All Young People Thrive. And if you're listening and thinking, wow, this sounds like really important theoretical knowledge, but how do I use it? Let me assure you rapidly here that uh, each chapter... Uh, has really clever and provocative ways of challenging your thinking and helping you to see, in quite practical ways, how to apply to your own world some of these important ideas. Let's get to um to the to the approach that you are advocating for. G- give us the you know essential elements of what uh, the the holistic uh, indigenous approach must in- include.
0: So I think about schools in three buckets. I think about conventional schools, which are really your factory model schools. And whether we use these words or not, they really are about creating units, economic and social units. Nothing wrong with that, but that's their primary purpose. The second bucket is what I think of as kind of whole child Um, innovative reform. So we understand that there's something that that doesn't quite work about the conventional system. It's a little bit too narrow in its focus. It doesn't see kids as whole human beings. So we bolt on different types of programs, right? Project-based learning, culturally responsive practice, DEI initiatives, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But it's not fundamentally grounding the work in something different human-centered liberatory programs, they start with the question, you know, what's the purpose of what we're trying to do? And the answer they give to that is we're hoping and helping to create thriving human beings. And part of that is academic, part of it is intellectual, but it's so much more. And so because they ground themselves in this idea of what do human beings need to thrive? They think about human development and the fact that from zero to 25, young people are sort of un- unfolding into their personhood and we need to be meeting their developmental needs. They think about the diversity of ways of learning, of knowing the world, of understanding the world, and they build learning experiences and design their schools in ways that are grounded first and foremost in relationship um, and, and cultivating a sense of belonging and then out of that, they create the opportunity for young people to drive their learning out of areas of interest, of passion, of, have, of the context of their lives in the world, and really kind of find that fit between who they are and what the world needs so that mm-hmm. they can act, become contributing members of society.
1: Mm-hmm. You, you use the term liberatory. Can you just describe briefly how you're using that term? Why is that an important concept in your description of educational systems that that we need not the ones that we currently have at least for the most part You're, and i and i want to follow that with uh an inquiry about um you know some examples that you've seen of uh schools that are or systems that are approaching that model but first why why liberatory
0: That's another word I I tried to define up front in the book. So historically, a few of the figures that I look at, who I think were the forebearers of this human-centered liberatory movement, they looked at what was happening with the factory model of school and mass schooling in Europe. And what they saw was people trying to impose on young people in ways, again, that sort of formed them into economic and social units. And they said, You know, every human being is born in part as a spiritual being, right? Not religious, but spiritual, that they are who they are. And I have two children. When they were born, like there was a way in which each of them had a personality and was like a being in and of themselves. And so they recognized that and they said, look, the work of education should be about allowing the unfolding of that and Mm -hmm. allowing a person to become who they are, right? In 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 more fullness, and they talked about that as being liberated from all of these kind of formal systems that were trying to shape and mold human beings into the vision of of the formal system. So that's why I use the term liberatory—that you're mm-hmm. being liberated from some of these external influences and then liberated sort of into yourself.
1: Yes, it's it's really quite remarkable. I have three kids and now three grandchildren. And, uh, you know, as soon as they're born, as you say, you can see, wow, they came from the same place, but completely different human beings. And the mantra in our home, when our kids were growing up was everyone is different. And that kind of guided, you know, all of our parenting choices as much as we could. Everyone's different, which meant everyone needs something different. Uh, and and we have you know the, with our limited resources opportunities to try to help each person grow in, in the way that they need to, uh, and and there are attempts at doing this. So um, I wonder if you could just give us the you know the the critical elements of what uh, what this approach includes, um, so that as we then move to the second part of the show, we, we can describe how parents the private sector, policy people can can start to invest in and and cultivate those kinds of uh, educational environments. What are the essential elements?
0: Wow, that's really interesting. I don't think I've thought about it in those terms, but I would say most of these schools, um, so some of the models that I highlight and include are things like Montessori, Steiner Mm -hmm. Waldorf, um, United World College, big picture learning. I'll Mm -hmm. say a couple of things about them. Most of them tend to be small schools. right? Mm -hmm. They tend to be schools where Dunbar's number is this idea that human beings can only manage so many relationships at once. And so these schools tend to be about 200 kids or less. Mm -hmm. They are schools in which Young people are seen as an asset, so they may not have huge budgets, but part of what they, they create is a different relationship between the adults and the young people, where young people are seen as partners and drivers of the learning and therefore are seen as an asset in the school overall because mm-hmm. they can teach each other. They can mm-hmm. drive their own learning as they opposed places- to
1: shut up and listen to me.
0: Pretty much the idea that the adult sage on the stage, right? That Mm -hmm. the adult is the one who knows it and they deliver it to the young person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, They are places where people have learned to be in very different relationship with one another. And that to me, I would love to talk about that more. There is a way in which these schools cultivate a sense of belonging And an ability for each person to bring their full self, their full identity to the table, which doesn't mean that there are no disagreements, no arguments, no difficulties, no challenges, right? These are human environments. And there's a very different tenor to the relationships that exist inside of them that's grounded in the sense of mutuality. That who I am is informed in part by who we are, right? that that idea of Ubuntu in, in kind of the African um, culture. So mm-hmm. this idea, I am because we are, and who I am and what I do influences the environment, which in turn influences me. And that mm-hmm. creates a very different set of relationships. They are places where learning is not about data points, they're not about standards. Learning is about larger competencies. Certainly there are skills inside of it. And there are places that really understand you can learn in different ways. Learning counts regardless of where and when and with whom it happens. And there are different ways to show learning. And so there are a lot more modalities, I think, um, for young people to access information, to learn, to show what they know. And because of that, they tend to be much more diverse in terms of the kinds of minds that they can support without labeling those minds. Right. So you very rarely are sort of hearing, hearing somebody say, well, you're dyslexic and you can't read It's You need information you get information through audio or through video while somebody else may be getting information through text. Mm -hmm. And so there's a very different relationship of young people to their own strengths, their own skills and the ways Mm -hmm. in which they are in the world.
1: You know, I've been, uh, teaching uh, college and uh, you know, graduate students for 40 years. And I see my primary task as creating learning communities in which uh, each member is valued uh, for their contributions as you know, to the, to the community, as well as, you know, in, in terms of what they glean from their experience in those communities. Um, what do you see as, Uh, the most important task for those of us who convene such communities to create the kind of, uh, you know, sense of belonging and mutuality that you describe. What, what is, what is the necessary kind of social ingredient or, you know, cultural ingredient or even political ingredient that, that educators need to uh, muster the will to bring to their uh, schools uh, to create that, that elusive, yet critically important feeling among all members.
0: I thought a lot about that because I think if there's anything that's going to stand in the way of our building more of these schools, it is the human element. And my observation is that it has to start with the adults being able to sit in different relationship with themselves and the work. Right. So I think this idea of deeply knowing myself, of having done the work of understanding my own identity and disconnecting my identity from what I might encounter with other people is really important because I can't hold space for someone else to be who they are. I can't hold space to witness somebody else as who they are if that feels threatening to me. And so I need to have done the work as an adult to actually open up, be like, I I come here as a full person with a sense of vulnerability, with a sense of authenticity and curiosity Mm -hmm. to then have a space in which you can come and we can be together without me feeling threatened and sort of pushing down and closing back, which I think is a, a lot of what happens in our sort of management of young people or management of systems. So I would say that's true. In schools, I would say it's true in businesses. I would say it's true in our community centers. And I think it's part of the conversation we're all having right now in this country um, around what is it to kind of to make space for the complexity of, of ourselves as a nation with so many different people and so many different stories. That's almost a different book, but, um, but I think it, also, it starts with that. And that's deep transformational personal work Mm -hmm. Um, that the adults in these schools have often done, maybe not intentionally, but that is a consistency. Uh, That's something I see consistently across the folks I interview.
1: You mean, when you say in these schools, the folks you interview, you mean in the schools that are somehow embodying the holistic indigenous approach to education?
0: These human-centered laboratory schools, yeah. When I I sort of go in and say, gosh, what is it that allows it to, to be what it is? Yeah. That feels like a really critical part.
1: That's, uh, that, that's a big idea that requires a kind of investment in the uh, human you know, uh, capabilities of the people who are you know, doing the convening and guiding of these learning systems. And uh, when we return from our short break, I'd like to pick up on this idea of how we cultivate a workforce uh, that recruit and you know, and develop a, a workforce that that has that kind of uh, interest and uh, courage and and skill. Uh, so stay with us folks. We're going to take a short break here. Don't go away. When we come back, I'll continue my conversation with Oka Hansen about her wonderfully. Uh, crafted and critically important new book. It's called The Future of Smart. I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Work and Life
0: on Business Radio.
1: Hey, welcome back to Work and Life. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm so glad you're here. I am the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program. I started those 30 years ago. And now, uh, having founded Total Leadership, a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of their lives, that's what I spend a good chunk of my time doing. My guest today is also in the world of education and fundamental change in our society. Her name is Olga Hansen, and we're talking about her new book. It's called The Future of Smart. How our education system needs to change to help all young people thrive. Olka is a mother of two and a former teacher who's an internationally recognized expert on educational transformation. We were talking before the break, Olka, about the workforce of educators. Um, what's missing in the current, uh, you know, system for? Uh, developing, recruiting, developing, and, and uh, training, and continuing to, to, to have our educators thrive? What's missing, and, and what can be done about that before we get into um, some other questions about changes that we all need to focus our attention on to make things better for our, the next generation?
0: So before we left, we were just talking about My observation that in these human-centered liberatory schools, adults are able to hold space for young people and mm-hmm. for, for members of the community in very different ways. So first of all, I will say we've all had these teachers and many of them are inside of our, the schools that we went to, kind of more conventional schools. They're the ones that everyone knows, right? They're the ones that everyone remembers and talks about and was like, that person changed my life somehow. Mm-hmm. And if you think back to what it was that they did, I think it, and it, it's that they saw you. It's that they saw you and they made space for you, whether that was in a formal setting or an extracurricular or a mentor or a coach. So that capacity, it is a deep, it is a human capacity. I'll back up for a second. I say in the book, I'm a third culture kid. And that refers to somebody who was raised by parents who grew up in one culture. You're raised in a second culture. And then at some point in those formative first 20 years, you spend time in one or more other cultures. And for a lot of reasons, my family background I spent a lot of my life bouncing around from place to place and the advantage of that was being able to integrate into different places more easily. Mm -hmm. The downside of it is that you never quite belong anywhere. And when my kids, when my first son was born, I remember thinking, I don't know how to let myself belong to him really fully. And I don't know how to in some ways, it sounds weird, but I'm not sure I know how to create space for him to belong to me. Hmm. And I feel like I spent I, I spent the better part of a decade really grappling with feeling like I, I just wasn't present in the way that I wanted to be as a mother.
1: What was missing? And,
0: well, that's exactly it. Um, I have come to see, and this is like my second book that someday I'm going to write. My, my working title is On the Edge of Outside. But I realized what I was missing was the ability to just to be okay in myself and to allow for the kind of vulnerable yet amazingly important space that can exist between the two of us that allows us to kind of create something new, a new and different type of relationship. And and to get there, I had to first kind of be be okay with my own identity and not let it be jostled by whoever he was becoming, right. Or whoever he needed to be, or needed me to be like, I needed to be safe in my own sense of self. I needed to learn how to navigate the discomfort that came like the, the, actual discomfort that came when it felt like he was doing something or saying something or asking me to be something that felt challenging. And there was a very somatic sense of that, a physical way of working through the discomfort of that. Um, And so when I, all this to say that when I think about helping adults and teachers and educators become, um, build the capacity to do these things in classrooms and with young people, I think our- To allow
1: them to become who they need to become need
0: to become for the young people right Mm -hmm. I think right now our teacher preparation programs and I went through one are very cognitively based I learned the theory of human development and I learn about learning theories and how to craft you know classes what we don't create is spaces for educators to be together in community with other folks and give them the tools that allow them to again be vulnerable to grapple with sort of the complexity of what it is to be in relationship with each other, to talk through that, to navigate the kind of feelings of discomfort that come with that. And before I came to Grantmakers for Education, I did a program called Silk Strand and it was based on racial dialogue work and sort of this healing centered approach to racial dialogue. And a large part of what we did was we gave people constructs around racism and what is it and you know how do we understand it? But a large part of it was in community, We are going to get some tools that allow us to sit in front of other people, hear who they are, hear what they have to say, hear about their experiences, be mindful and aware of how this makes me feel, including the times and the ways in which it makes me feel uncomfortable. And then we're going to give you tools to actually process that and alchemize it as opposed to going back up to our heads immediately and trying to shut it down Mm
1: -hmm. because
0: it makes me feel unsafe. And it sounds like really hard work and it is, but it's also not as complex and not as hard as we think it is. I think we just assume that people know how to belong to each other. And I'm not sure that's true. I think it's something that we have to learn. We have to work at
1: that for sure. We
0: we have and we have to because our
1: natural bias is to protect ourselves from those uh, discomforting experiences of difference and conflict and a worldview that might challenge our own. So we shut down. And so that work that you describe is is serious business. Um, And I know that you know many, if not most, educators do not undertake it. Uh, sufficiently, no fault of their own, but you know, the resources aren't there. Am I right?
0: They are not there. It's not been the focus of the system. And again, in the conventional factory model, that's not what you needed, right? Right. You needed to understand how to deliver lessons to young people. You needed to know how to manage a classroom. So in some ways we haven't been doing it because I don't think we fully knew that we had to, I think right now we're in this very interesting space where we have a lot of educators and schools and districts that are trying to figure out how to do this work, um, but they've never had to do it before. And the good news is, right, I'm an optimist fundamentally. I think there are places and ways and people um, who do this work, but we have to think of it as deep work that takes time, that takes passion, Mm -hmm. compassion, right, for ourselves and each other. Um, And it's not about our heads and our intellect. Well, it's it's partly that. It's partly that but it's partly about how we are. Resmmenism yes. in his, in my grandmother's hands talks about this, right? This like how our bodies hold our traumas and our experiences and how we can use our bodies to help us alchemize and move through those. And that's a really important part of this work. I think.
1: You say alchemize you mean to somehow transform, right? Mm-hmm. To create something new by design, uh something new and 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 more well with greater integrity, wholeness, uh, uh right? Is is that what you mean by alchemize?
0: Yeah, I think um, I did a 10 day silent meditation course one time and it's in the Vipassana tradition. And one of the the things that you learn in there is that we often think that we have a, we sort of have a sensation and we react to like, we, we react to something because we have a sensation And what you do there is you do a lot of body scanning and you Mm -hmm. do a lot of like, let me notice something Mm -hmm. and then let me very intentionally not react to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and that that is actually a choice and the way our brains and bodies Mm -hmm. work, you can actually do that. And so when I say alchemize, it's actually being very intentional about the process of noticing and then allowing ourselves to do something different from it than maybe what our patterns and our habits have conditioned us.
1: Yes. Yes. An intentional transformation based on an observation, (laughs) Of what's real and what's what's going on, but but that pause, that moment, w- which is not made available to most people in the educational workforce, right? No. Uh, so, um, let me just remind listeners: this is work and life on Business Radio, Sirius XM One Thirty Two. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm talking to Olga Henson about her wonderful new book. It's called The Future of Smart, um, which I think has everything to do with the readiness of our workforce to To be, you know, prepared for the trials and challenges and opportunities to come, and also what it means for us as people involved in the education world, whether as parents or um, as policy people or just any citizen, uh, to be thinking about what is what is it that we're doing to prepare the next generation and what it means for us to take a, a holistic approach to the life of the next generation, how that helps us to be better managers, better employees, better colleagues, better, better uh, community members ourselves. Um, so th- there's two tracks I want to try to proceed on here before we have to wrap up all too soon. Elka, and one is uh, why does education matter to everybody? I mean, I know you'll be preaching to the choir here, but, I just want you in your words to describe to listeners why paying attention to uh, helping to transform the world of education in our society is something that everyone listening here uh, is, you know, ought to, ought to, uh, ought to hear about.
0: When I decided I wanted to be an educator, it was because I looked around the world and I thought, gosh, We have all these problems, international relations, the climate, the economy, but they're all systems and problems and challenges that we've created. So human society is built out of human beings and how we educate our human beings to understand who they are, how they relate to others, the kind of communities and societies they want to build. Like It feels like we should be going downstream a little bit and really caring about who young people grow into grow to be right and education is that and so when I think about education, it is to me the kind of root cause and the root um, it's sort of it's, it's it's the wellspring for i think the kind of solutions and the changes that we need in the world so mm-hmm. we have tended to think about education as this thing that happens over there with those educators who create the economic and social widgets and units that we need and i would argue no our communities and our societies are made up of human beings and we all have an investment whether they belong to me biologically or not in making sure that they grow into thriving human beings who understand that they belong to the world and the world is their responsibility. So, so that, yeah. l-
1: let me jump in here and because I want to get to uh, what, what we've learned in pandemic times, uh, you know, ha- has it been helpful uh, in terms of uh, radicalizing parents yeah. and others uh, or at least making them more aware of the the very challenge you describe here and and what, what, what we as a society need to do to, to help to cultivate the kind of educational workforce that is going to be able to deliver on the promise of a, of a more humane and intelligent approach to education.
0: So I think the pandemic taught us a few things. Um, First is that What the world needs is not actually more people who can analyze and and kind of artificial intelligence and technology are able to do a lot of things. What the world needs right now are people who have the deeply human capabilities of being creative, of being collaborative, of being compassionate, of being able to solve, Complex, ambiguous problems, right? And we need different minds to be able to do that. And I think the pandemic shows us what happens when when we have those sorts of people, right? We can put vaccines together in a year. And so I think what we've seen is that is that what the world needs is what human-centered liberatory programs help to create in a way that conventional schools don't. I think a lot of parents saw how much education does not meet the needs of their child because their child is a unique being who has unique needs and what they saw up front and personal was the way in which the system is not able to sort of pivot in that way again it's not the fault of educators it's that the system is not built to be nimble and adaptive and so i would like to think that coming out of the pandemic not only is there more awareness of the need to change something and not just tinker with it there's more awareness and the, the system has also broken down in ways that allow for things to be done that we would have always said could never be done. So if you had said to somebody four years ago, gosh, let's have three years where we don't test kids with standardized tests at the end of every year, they would have said, we can't possibly do that. Well, guess what? We've done it. Um, if we had said to people you know, three years ago, gosh, like what if kids weren't in school to learn? People would have said, well, we can't possibly do that. But guess what? That's what we had to do. And so I think there's an opening now for the coalition mm-hmm. of the willing, the people who see a need for the people who've been doing this work already over the last 20, 25, 30 years in pockets of practice around the country to kind of come together and have space for the research and development. I tend to think of it as research and development, right? The whole system is not going to change at once. Mm -hmm. I think what we need to do is create space for the people who want to build new systems, who want to say, gosh, how can we credential learning? How can we give credit for learning that doesn't happen inside a classroom? Because it mm-hmm. turns out my kid like, got really fascinated by Gray's Anatomy, decided he wanted to be a surgeon, taught himself to dissect a fetal pig um, on his own and like got a suture kit and taught himself how to suture. That's a lot of learning. I'm not sure he's going to get credit for it, but we could give him credit for it, right? And I'm sure every parent has this sort of experience, like something their kid learned to do. So how do we credential learning? regardless of where it happens. How do we know and and sort of assess learning where it's happening in authentic and different ways? How do we hold systems accountable for serving all kids? How do we do college admissions if there are no SATs and ACTs and GPAs that are reliable, right? So give folks the room to sort of invent and build these new and aligned systems that become the foundations of a new system over the course of the next 10, 15, 20 years. And I think there's an opening for that to happen, mm-hmm. even as we continue to sort of meet the urgent and immediate needs of the vast majority of our schools that really are just grappling with, how do we get kids into safe spaces? How do we feed them? How do we mm-hmm. kind of help them learn basic skills? Yes,
1: well, a, yeah. a hungry child is not someone who can learn very well. No. so. How do we get it so that the salaries of teachers are inverted with the salaries of bankers? Any thoughts about that?
0: Well, I, I think that is a fundamental values and assumptions question, <laughs> right? And, and so I think, and yes, how do we do that? Um, so, but that, that happens because we make a choice around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer, I've worked in policy, but policy is, a, is an articulation of values. Mm -hmm. And I would like to think that this last year has sort of opened people's eyes to the work that we ask educators to do, to the supports that our schools and our educators need to do that work well. And that sort of involves all of us, whether we're parents or not. Um, So, yeah, I, I think this is a really important moment for us to pause and say, where are we putting our dollars? And is it into more tests and accountability systems, or is it to actually pay teachers and give them the the time they need to sort of build the skills they need to do their work?
1: Folks, you're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio at Sirius XM 132. I'm Stu Friedman, your host. I'm speaking with Olga Hansen about her important new book. It's called The Future of Smart. Um, So in the the last uh, piece of uh, our show today, Olga, I wonder if you could say a bit more about what your first priorities would be in terms of the path forward, which you describe in some detail in the, in the chapter seven, the final chapter of your book, what's, what's most critical that that listeners ought to know about and that they can do something about.
0: So it, it depends, and I hope you will pick up the book, because I tried really hard to kind of say to, to give very concrete examples for for what you could do based on whether you're a parent or a community member or a business member or policymaker. I think the first thing is to really distinguish between I talked about those three categories of schools, mm-hmm. so to really distinguish between the innovative whole child reform schools that are tinkering with the old model and Human-centered liberatory schools, really understanding the distinction between those two things and holding them apart. Because Mm -hmm. if we can hold them apart, we can understand what we need to do for each of them um, to allow them to kind of to, to be what they need to be. So I think the first is kind of reading and spending the time to actually distinguish between them. If I were a funder, I would take a portion of my portfolio it could be 5% and actually say what I'm going to do now that I understand the distinction between those two things is to go and find the communities, the people, the parents, the students who support and do human centered liberatory education and give them the support they need to do things like codify models of Mm -hmm. schools that exist so that other communities can take them Mm -hmm. and adapt them to their needs. I would invest in building new ways of thinking about credentialing learning building new ways of holding schools accountable for things that they do that right now our accountability systems don't have. If I were a policymaker, I would create sort of space for that research and development and innovation so that maybe the schools that need to do this this R&D building work have three to five years where they're exempted from a lot of the current Mm. requirements that hold them back, which doesn't mean they shouldn't be accountable. But you allow them to articulate. Give them
1: time to innovate and to test.
0: What about as parents?
1: Uh, Because many people listening are parents and thinking, hmm, yeah, this makes sense. How do I get that for my kid?
0: Yes. (laughs) So, again, I think understanding the distinction, I think understanding who your child is, right? As a parent, one of the most helpful things to me about understanding how human-centered liberatory schools operate is I can see how they organize learning, how they assess my child, how they make more room for my child to have the time and the space they need to learn for themselves. So I think understanding a little bit more, and I try in the book to kind of give that information, Mm -hmm. understanding what makes them unique, and then really understanding your child and talking with your child about, what worked over this last year for you? What didn't work, and what does that mean about who you are as a learner? What you need to kind of be supported? And as school starts back up, really talking with your teachers and advocating for this for the types of small adaptations and adjustments that um, that can really help help learning happen better for your child. I also think parents should be advocating for and supporting schools in spending the time needed to kind of rebuild relationships, to rebuild school cultures. I think there's a lot of fear around learning loss right now. And I think it's it's kind of prompting schools and educators to jump back into something before we've given kids and adults time to kind of get to know each other again and to get to know the work that they're trying to do together and, and process kind of the trauma of the last year and a half. So I think that sort of patience and supporting your school and doing that work is huge. If you're an employer, um, gosh, learning in real world context is yes. such a powerful thing for young people. So how can you get kids into your business or into your community centers or into your nonprofits? And I'm talking kindergartners through high schoolers.
1: Kindergartners
0: <laughs> Not to work, but how do you get kids into the world to be like, gosh, this is how the world works. And this is why what mm. I'm learning matters. And this is how all these ideas that you're trying to teach me about science and social studies and reading, how they, why they actually matter, right? You, you see mm. amazing examples of young kids going out and being like, gosh, we're seeing a problem in our park with trash. So now let's do a design thinking project. To figure out solutions and coming up with great solutions about making different types of garbage cans that kind of stand up to you know dogs hitting them. i mean there's really interesting stuff that kids at all ages can do but mm-hmm. i think as communities we need to um we need to see ourselves as part of the work moving forward and um, i think we saw that happening in really interesting ways during the pandemic again in some communities and not all
1: hmm well, uh, we're, we're going to have to bring it to a close here, Ilka. Um, I really appreciate the work that you're doing and you're sharing some of uh, the important insights from the future of SMART uh, with our listening audience today. Can you say just a bit more about how listeners can find out more about the work that you're doing and how they can both learn from it and perhaps contribute to it?
0: So my website is www.ulca, my first name, ulcca.com. So you can go there. And I've tried to put up resources that are related to the book. I would appreciate people picking up the book, um, reading it, sharing it. I think it could be the basis. Hopefully for really important community conversations right in your local bookstore or in your mom's mom's reading books, in my case, or as professional learning communities to kind of say, gosh, what does this provoke for us in Mm -hmm. terms of what we would like to see and what our role is as a community in making that happen.
1: Yeah, so, I think that's I, a really important aspect of the applying the ideas uh, element that you that you bring in uh, to to throughout the book that you, you're giving you're giving us you know provocative, change-inducing questions to address for ourselves and and each other. But please continue with your quick wrap here on what what people can do to both learn from and contribute to the, to the work that you've created here.
0: I mean, one of the big messages of the book is that this change is not going to be a top-down change. It is going to be emergent change in the sense of school communities, local communities, regional communities, saying we need something different. We need something that's going to actually help our young people and our future workforce and citizenry to thrive. And we are willing to sort of do the work, to do the advocacy Um, to kind of provide the supports necessary to make that happen. And that that is going to happen in these nodes and pockets all over the country in Mm -hmm. different rates and different paces. And ultimately, right, what it does is come together in a sort of blanket of something new, but I don't think we can wait for, you know, for policymakers to just do it on their own accord. I think no change happens that way. I think there's enabling that can happen for those listeners who happen to be in positions of power and influence.
1: We are all a part of this conversation and you've really advanced it for us. Thank you so much uh, for being my guest today and thank you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question about something you heard on the show, you can email me friedman at Wharton.upen.edu or our station at business radio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow on Twitter at SXM business. I'm at Stu Friedman. You can also find me on LinkedIn Go to totalleadership.org to find out more there. All kinds of free resources, um, videos, free book chapters, etc. cetera. Uh, check it out. Patty Hall, our producer. Thanks, as ever. Our sound engineer is Chris Tooks. Thanks for listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Sirius XM 132.